0: Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry. This podcast is an extension of the Santa Clarita Valley Underground, whose mission is to catalyze gospel movements in Santa Clarita, Los Angeles, and beyond. We discuss all things gospel movements, what they are, methods for bringing them about, and hearing practitioners' stories from the field. Today, we are joined by John Rittner. John served as lead pastor of Ecclesia Hollywood and director of Forge Hollywood, a missional discipleship training program. He pastored for 10 years in a megachurch in Williamsburg, Virginia, before moving on to plant microchurches in Brussels, Belgium. Today, John focuses on coaching and consulting, and in his position as Chief Strategy Officer with Communitas International. He holds an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a Bachelor of Science from the College of William and Mary. John and his wife, Kristen, of 20 years, have two children. And he is also the author of Positively Irritating, Embracing a Post-Christian World to Form a More Faithful and Innovative Church. John, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, Daniel, it's great to be with you again. Look forward to connecting today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were joking in the intro, like your book. I was like, where was this thing five years ago when I was pastoring and going through my own crisis of mission and seeing different things? So I'm really excited to, to talk about it. Yeah. But uh, hey, uh, one thing we do on the show is we ask our guests to share with us a funny the mission story like, you know, something that only you can't make it up kind of stuff. So yeah. do you have something that you could share with us?
1: Yeah. You know, years ago, the first time I ever went on a cross-cultural kind of mission trip, right. In, in terms of a short-term trip, even I was a youth leader and we took a team down to Mexico and I had been a, an AP Spanish student and felt pretty confident in my ability to speak the language. And I was trying to model for these kids. How do you embed? And You know, one of the ways of doing that is is uh, speaking the language, even if you feel a little uncomfortable to try to center the the culture that you're working in. And so, I thought, okay, whenever I go out into public, I'm going to do my best to speak Spanish. And I remember I had the the leader, the local leader, who was a a seasoned pastor, kind of with me, and uh, we walked we walked into a little bodega one day, and I had to buy water for uh, all of our team. They tell you not to drink the local water as a as a non local and and I remember I bought all the water. And then I, I said in my best Spanish to the woman, um, can I have a receipt, please? And she kind of stared at me and I repeated it like maybe my pronunciation wasn't correct. Can I have a receipt? And finally, she just shook her head. And I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I walked out and the pastor looked at me. He goes, you, you know, you just asked her for the, for the recipe for water, right? And I went, nope. Okay. I was looking for a receipt. And then- it's funny, we dropped off the, as we were heading back to drop off the water, there was like a little, there was a woman out at a cafe and I noticed she was reading the Bible and I was kind of not familiar with this notion of being out in public reading a Bible and I didn't know if that was common for Mexican culture and I thought I want to connect with her and so I looked over and I said, I like your book in Spanish and again, just a blank stare and I, I smiled again, I like your book and nothing, I walked away and the guy at this time, the pastor now is dying laughing and i said i don't understand he said what do you think you said? I, said I think i said i like your book he goes no 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 you said i want your freedom and he goes Libro is book libre is freedom and i went okay he goes what are you like a trafficker i'm like and then he laughed he goes maybe just stop talking to people you know <laughs> i learned that the the challenge of uh, cross cultural ministry is you know if you're going to speak the language you better be ready to make a fool of yourself and so we we had plenty of those experiences in brussels too as we were trying to Learn some conversational French.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say, man. That's like, yeah, I'm surprised she didn't reply with a two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. That's,
1: that's right. right. <laughs> she, she knew the recipe. She could have told me.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Like, come on, maybe don't hold back here. Uh, on That's awesome, man. Well, let's jump into hearing your story. You and I met through a friend a few months ago, actually, we had breakfast together and uh, was really encouraged by your story the trajectory of where Jesus is taking you, the way you see ministry, the way you see the church and the possibilities that exist. I think it's so easy for us to, you know, throw stones at the Western church and, you know, here's everything wrong with it. Like that's the easy part, but meeting people that have some ideas for like how we can move forward, that's, that's more of a rarity, I think, well, in my experience anyway. So I'm really excited to share some of your ideas and also the ideas in your book. So Let's just start off by finding out a little bit about more, you know, who you are, like where did you come from growing up, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Who are yeah, you? I, I I grew up in the Northeast, the suburbs of New York City from, you know, birth to high school graduation was up there. Uh, one of the unique oddities of my childhood is that my parents were pastors and I like to say all five of them uh, between my my mother and my father and then their second marriages and then eventually my father's third marriage, all f- Five of my parents and step parents are ordained Methodist pastors. And so my, my parents met at seminary and at uh, Union in New York City. And then there was, uh, you know, I was the ultimate PK, right? I mean, everywhere I went, whether it was school year with my mom or summers with my dad in Minnesota, my parents were always pastoring and I was always kind of with them. But, you know, my experience of that as a child, as an observer, was that faith and, and, you know, God and religion was really something that only took place on a Sunday, as your podcast says. It was a a one day a week experience. And it didn't seem to really infiltrate the rest of our lives. We didn't have family devotions. We didn't pray much. We didn't talk about, you know, the life of Jesus. And I didn't really have an understanding of the gospel or a personal relationship with Jesus um, through that time. And so, you know, being in that kind of fishbowl of moralism and pressure to perform as a kid without the internal transformation you know really led me to to not view it as something that I wanted long term in my life so when I went to college down in virginia i basically decided i was not going to church anymore and my freshman year i joined a fraternity house and decided to kind of go in the opposite direction you know in many ways i was i like to say i was the classic example of a post christian kid i had done christianity it hadn't resonated with me and i was over it and and moving beyond it And then, you know, the way God works in this fraternity house, little did I know that there were seven guys who were following Jesus. A lot of them had young life backgrounds, and they viewed themselves as kind of sent missionaries into this fraternity house. and And as they got to know me, and they shared their faith with me, and they shared the gospel with me, and as God was working in my life, eventually I came to a point where my sophomore year, you know, I wanted what they had, and uh, I ended up kind of surrendering to Jesus and. My prayer was just simply, God, I quit. I can't do this anymore. And, you know, I'm ruining my life. And I asked those guys that they would help me and pray for me. And those became the first guys who kind of mentored and discipled me. Uh, And I lived in that house then for another year and a half. And so, you know, my first taste of living out the life of Jesus was in a very hostile environment, an environment where a lot of my fraternity brothers were pretty upset that I had, quote unquote, gone to the dark side, which is how they referred to my conversion. Um, and didn't want to go out partying and drinking with them anymore. Uh, and for me, it was an incredible opportunity to try to stay in that house, to embed in that house and to try to live differently and to, you know, try to instill the same sort of hope and joy and love that I had found in Christ in the lives of these guys. And so I went from kind of three years of ministry in that fraternity house. I started leading a, a fellowship, of Christian athletes group on campus. And that's where I first kind of sensed this call to to join jesus's work in the world and to uh, participate in equipping and empowering others to be involved in ministry as well so you know that to me is kind of my definition of vocational ministry is equipping and empowering others to join god's work in the world so from there i ended up going to seminary out in chicago at, at trinity and deerfield and then my mentor who is a pastor back in virginia invited me to come back and join him on his staff at the williamsburg community chapel which was at that time growing from about 400 to 700 and then uh, over the course of the next decade, would grow to about 3,500. I, I just
0: appreciate your, your story because it seems like from the very beginning, you were reached by the exact people that were attempting to equip, right? That living as missionaries. And so I just find it really like, isn't, isn't it Jesus, right? You weren't going to church most likely at that time. You know, it didn't matter what the graphic design looked like or what great event they had, like you, you likely weren't going. It took people to live there to be with. And, uh, I think that you're an example of exactly what we're trying to equip. I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing how my own kind of conversion story has become a microcosm of the ministry that God's called me to. You know, I, I've said in the past, you know, when I got to the point where I was never going to go to church. Jesus sent his church to me, you know, and so his, his church was embedded in this fraternity house. And, you know, I didn't have phrases back then for missional communities or micro churches or any of this sort of language, but that's what these guys were. And they didn't have that language either, but they just knew that, you know, to be faithful to the call of Jesus on their life, they wanted to, you know, be disciple makers and they wanted to do it in a place where they thought Jesus might need their presence or want to want their presence. So yeah, I love that you picked up on that. That's been kind of fun. I had I, I it took me a long time to to kind of put all that together to realize that my origin story has ended up being kind of the theme of my ministry career.
0: Yeah, and I think what we're trying, what I'm trying to tell people is like, whereas maybe with you it was more of the abnormal, you know, something like this happening, where where maybe I'm guessing in the '80s or so, somewhere around there, '90s. There was still a a large push to, you know, evangelize by inviting the church. And so what I'm saying, trying to tell people today is like more and more, this story needs to be the norm. Like, Like that's how people come to know Jesus is through, you know, lived missionary kind of life by believers. So, yeah, cool. So you, you find yourselves, you find yourself in Virginia, you're at a mega church. It's kind of booming. So tell me a little bit about your time there and then kind of where ministry went from there.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I came back and took on a role as director of discipleship and was thinking through, you know, just the the programs of a large church, men's and women's ministries, and small group ministries, and even spent a year doing kind of youth and young adult ministries. And, you know, over the course of 10 years in a, in a church like that, you kind of climb the the ladder, so to speak, and you get promoted to different roles and and the more I invested in that environment, and the more I kind of became good at leading programs and good at being a professional, and the more I got excited that we were building bigger properties. You know, we eventually had the sixteen million dollar capital campaign to build a giant sanctuary that could hold a hundred—I mean, uh, fifteen hundred people—and we had sixty people on staff. And you know, Easter was four thousand four hundred people, and just the joys of all of that. Externally, I was in this dream place that it seemed like every young pastor wanted to be. I mean, this was the American church dream to be growing and thriving. And yet I started kind of having this sense of uh, disruption in my own soul and spirit, that it wasn't actually everything that I thought it was going to be. You know, I I, I define it as kind of this internal crisis that I had that kind of had three dimensions to it. I mean, the first was uh, a crisis of mission that, I realized that most of my time, and I was working probably fifty to sixty hours a week and out of the house most nights, most of my time was spent with existing Christians, creating resources or programs to keep them busy. You know I, I said I felt a little bit like a program director on a Christian cruise ship, you know that my job was to to go ahead and fill every hour of the day for my Christian church members so they had something they could do. And yet, when I look back on what initially drew me into ministry and those early days in a fraternity house and those early days leading Bible studies with football players and soccer players, it wasn't entertaining Christians that inspired me. It was trying to reach those who were far from Jesus or didn't know Jesus. And I just didn't have any time for that. I mean, who had time to spend with those in your neighborhood when you were leading all these programs? So for me, that just felt like there was a dissonance there. This is not why I got into it. And yet, this is all I do. And then I began to kind of look around the the neighborhood and the city around me and realize there were whole patches of our, of our community that we had no impact on. In many ways, we were kind of just a white upper middle class suburban church that dealt with issues of loneliness and relational challenges around marriage and parenting, but we weren't dealing with any of the socioeconomic issues in the city. We weren't engaging across racial lines. We weren't really engaging in areas of like the arts or politics or even really business well. We were just kind of living in this religious sector. And and I just felt like there's more to the life of Jesus than just the church world, you know? And so something felt broken about that. I, I didn't quite know how to even articulate it. And then finally I think what really got to me as a pastor who wanted to one day be a, a, a mega church lead pastor was I began to see across the, the nation These megachurch lead pastors start failing, right? I mean, that was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. I won't mention names, but, you know, it's just started even before social media. Guys, you know, guys blowing up their marriages, guys having affairs, uh, you know, guys embezzling funds. I mean, just all sorts of things that were happening. And it seemed like the leadership culture that I was in was not healthy and then i even began to realize that my mentor was having some issues and i personally was examining my own heart and going this this really isn't a healthy system to be part of you know when i realized that i wanted nothing more to than to ascend to the throne of this mega church right i mean i wanted to be the guy who 40 sundays a a year got up front and taught in front of three services in this giant sanctuary and i wanted that affirmation i began to kind of go ooh, that is creepy that's ugly that's that's not a side of my heart i want to feed and yet this model of church is feeding that and so i didn't really know what to do it felt a little bit like the, you know the proverbial you're climbing a ladder and then you find up you find out it's against the wrong you know building and you're like ooh i don't i didn't think i don't think i want to be here and so i didn't know what to do with all that but i began to kind of wrestle and pray and be like jesus is there something more you know and am i missing it and am i maybe not being as faithful to the call you put on my life as I should be. And so around that time, I had a a beautiful God encounter where on a a Thursday when our staff gathered, we had a a friend from Brussels, Belgium, who was a a local missionary that we supported, and he came and shared with our staff about the work that God was doing in post-Christian Europe. And he shared about some new forms and expressions of church that were not relying on professionals, programs. Or property and instead they were focusing on making individual disciple makers basically putting all of their eggs in the basket of people formation and i just something about that resonated and you know in those divine moments that happened over the course of your life i sense this god whisper that sparked me encouraged me to try to go join what they were doing the phrase was you know what if you could go to europe and experience the future of the american church and experiment there, and then come back and help prepare the church for what's going to come. And so nine months after that meeting, my, my wife and my two kids, we arrived in Brussels on a three-year commitment on a missionary visa to serve his team there and to basically learn in the sandbox of, of Europe uh, new ways of expressing the church. So that was, that was my journey from kind of mega to then micro. And, and the life of Brussels was basically micro expressions around the city five or six different microchurch expressions of anywhere from 15 to 25 people that only gathered for worship once a month, but primarily expressed the life of Jesus through community gatherings, uh, pub quizzes, day plate, you know, play dates in the park, uh, community service projects, volunteering with nonprofits and things like that. And then eventually see people begin to express some interest in Jesus. And we might invite them into our home for a spiritual conversation, or we might invite them to a prayer gathering, but we never really invited them to our worship gathering, knowing that that was kind of a a cross-cultural experience for them. And so for those three years, I basically just wrestled with, you know, my old paradigms of church and tried to learn some new paradigms and new ways of expressing it. And then after those three years of, of learning, we felt the call to come back to the U.S. and kind of complete this journey. And we took a church in Hollywood, California and spent seven years kind of helping them reimagine and rethink their own expressions of church that resonated with more of a post-Christian culture than the, you know, more Bible Belt Christendom culture that many of our actors and artists had grown up in.
0: Yeah. I, I want to just go back just a little bit. Yeah. To when you were at the mega church. So you, you had mentioned that you, you it was about 400 when you got there and then it went to 700 and then eventually, you know, you're in the multiple thousands but at the same time, you're, you're talking about how you're not really reaching in the business community, socioeconomic, you know, status, racial lines and everything. So where's the growth coming from? Uh Uh Oh yeah. Right. And so like, so just mm -hmm. like you and I have been around long enough to know, like, I don't think people really understand where the growth comes from in sort of this mega church dynamic, because it's easy to sit in the pews and say, look at my church, we're reaching the city because so many people are coming, right? So yeah. where
1: was your growth coming from? I mean, there's three, in my experience, there's three growth engines within any church when it comes to numbers in your gathering. You know, the first growth engine is, is actually making a new disciple from scratch, right? That, which is beautiful. That's the dream. That's what we all want. Someone who doesn't know Jesus, encounters your community, ends up becoming a follower of Jesus and wants to participate in the life of your church for maturity, there was that was pretty rare. I mean, that might have been 10 to 15% of our growth. The majority of our growth was from the two other streams, which was Christ, existing Christians who were dissatisfied at other churches in town or who were just looking for the best programs, the best teaching, the best music, the best youth program in town, and switching over to our church. So we were, you know, doing a lot of sheep stealing, sheep shifting in our community. And I didn't realize it till much later, but, you know, most of our growth came from. People swapping out of their existing churches and into our church, and then also you had people in a, a retirement community like Williamsburg moving from the north and coming down and trying to find churches. And the larger we grew, the more our kind of reputation as the the most active, best program, best worship, best teaching, uh, best production church grew. The more people were attracted to us and, and came. So there was kind of a, a gravitational pull that that got more powerful the larger we got that would attract new people and then also attract people who were already in the town and others. But most of our kind of baptism stories were not you know, people who are far from God. They were people who were either rediscovering their faith or who had a crisis moment in their existing faith and, and decided they wanted to kind of recommit their life to Jesus. So it wasn't a lot of organic growth. And and to be fair, I had to go back to that town and I've met with local pastors and I've apologized to them. I've said, "Listen, we we never really uh, considered how our actions and our strategy might be negatively impacting the body of Christ that was in your expression. You know, the phrase I've used is we didn't very we didn't play well with others on the playground. You know, we were a little bit of the bully in town who didn't think about how our actions might have been impacting others. And so I've had to personally kind of repent of that. And and confess that to other churches and I'm, I'm very thankful that even in that town now there's a lot more collaboration across church lines and a lot more coalitions of pastors who are working together to kind of prevent that stuff from happening
0: yeah yeah I, you know I, I read this book a while ago it was on an airplane called the walmart effect i don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. that book no but i kind i kind of it's what happens when a walmart goes into a city right and so it just reminded me so much of like the church dynamic in america is like, you see these population movements, right? And then it's like, as soon as the population movement comes, then we'll sprout like a mega church kind of thing. But then as that sprouts, like all the smaller churches start to die away until yeah. you're left with just a few. And that's the same thing that happens in the Walmart effect. The Walmart moves in as it sees the trends of population growth and then as soon as it opens up all the small businesses shutter because they can't they can't keep up with the Walmart right like the pricing the the system just they're better at it yeah. in every way and so i bring this up not to really bash the mega church you know like god bless you guys it's yeah. just to to really bring a realization for people that that may not really understand Is like, there's really not much, as you call it, organic disciple making growth that's happening both in the larger church and in, you know, your more community centered churches. Like it's just not happening. It's really just musical chairs. Is that, is that a fair statement to make?
1: Yeah. And you know, your Walmart effect is a good analogy because what Walmart does, and the reason it gathers so many people and acquires all those is because it's catering to consumers. It's a consumer who wants the best product at the lowest cost. And in many ways, I think that's what we were doing is we were collecting consumers who were looking for the best programs with potentially the lowest level of commitment. Right. And and so Mm -hmm. smaller churches tend to put more requests on the people. They tend to you know, require more folks for them, but they also potentially may be doing a better job in formation of those people through some of those, through that involvement. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's a good analogy. Mm,
0: okay. So your ministry career, your mega church, you know, the, the transitions and paradigm shifts that have happened, go over to Brussels, you make your way back to, to Hollywood. Tell me a little bit about in your book, you mentioned the crisis of mission, right? The impact that it's had on your leadership. Could you share a little bit more about that concept
1: yeah i think a lot of my understanding of a lot of my theology a lot of my ecclesiology in the megachurch days was that god does his best work within the the walls of the church you know that the the highlight of god's week was sunday at 11 o'clock and and that's where he he really would show off in terms of teaching people having god moments what i began to realize living internationally living overseas and being part of a more missional or sent theology was that, you know, God does his best work out in the world and he invites the church to join him there and that there is value in the gathering of the community uh, and there's value in us coming together. But the, the proper rhythm of life is a breathing in and breathing out, uh, it's a, a gathering and a scattering. And we, you know, I had never really celebrated much the value of the scattering of the church into the world and thought about what does the church need to engage in the mission of Jesus, the life of Jesus in these everyday places of life. You know, we use the language of the places that you live, work, play, create. How do you as a follower of Jesus participate in the life and mission of Jesus there? All I had done really was teach people how to invite their friends to come to us on a Sunday so that we could have a a spiritual experience with them at 11 o'clock. We will do the disciple making. You just invite them to us. And so a lot of what we began to experiment with in Europe was recognizing they don't want to come to us. It's a post-Christian culture. The church has no institutional credibility. Even our gatherings that have a language, ritual, liturgy that they're not familiar with anymore. And so it's a cross-cultural experience in one in which they don't feel very comfortable. And so what we had to do was think about how do we encourage our people and equip our people to have all of the... The spiritual conversations and kind of transformational moments out in the ordinary spaces of life that we used to try to think about having in the sacred space of a church service, and so that that mission shift—that it's not about extracting Christians out of the world and bringing them into a church space, and it's not something about inviting those who don't know Jesus into your sacred spaces, but it's about sending your community out into the world and seeing all of life as sacred. And joining Jesus's mission there. That was a, a big paradigm shift for me that took a couple of years to get my head around. And is one that I'm still wrestling with, the implications of that as we, you know, lead faith communities.
0: Mm. So when I read your book, the first few pages are kind of your story of wrestling, you know, with the Sunday morning and this is the pastoring. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, this guy took my diary. <laughs> <laughs> just put it on <laughs> put it on the first couple of pages. Mm. I want my royalties, right? So, I'm just like totally connecting with what you're saying. But I gotta say that my my favorite part of your book was the phrase that you use disruptive disciple making mm-hmm. And I just thought like that is that is such a great way to talk about it because we're like, we're disrupting your view of reality, you know, we're disrupting mm. your view of Christianity. Now, in the book, you talk about how, you know so many people feel like they have they understand christianity right so we're disrupting it but i just i just thought man even beyond that what a great way to put it so can you just share with us a little bit more about uh, what what you call the industrialized disciple making versus the disruptive disciple making
1: yeah you know that disruptive disciple making phrase to me is really capturing the idea of the challenge of post christianity which is that in a post christian culture Most people have been exposed to forms of Christianity. They've been exposed to existing Christians. They may have even been exposed to the message of Christianity in such a way that they think they understand it and they're not interested in it. Now, it may be a true uh, understanding of it. It may be more of a distorted understanding of it, more of maybe a cultural understanding or even a political understanding of Christianity, but they've come to a realization that they know what it is and they don't want it. It's as simple as thinking about your you know, least favorite fast food restaurant. You know, There's got to be some fast food restaurant that you t- tasted just enough to know, Ugh, I don't like that place. I don't want to go there anymore. And if someone said, hey, let's go there for lunch, your first reaction would be, nope, I know enough about that place to know I don't like it and I'm never going there again. That is kind of what I think a lot of people in our American culture today and definitely in European culture, that's how they view Christianity not for them it doesn't appeal to their tastes right so how do you get someone to try that restaurant again if they think they've already made a decision and the reality is you have to play with their expectations you have to find a way to break them out of their current assumptions and i use the analogy in the book of you know a, a speed limit sign when when someone there was a, a retirement community in williamsburg that i would drive into to do a chapel service sometime and you know we all have an awareness of what a speed limit sign is and maybe if we're in a new neighborhood we check it out of curiosity but most times we drive at the speed that feels comfortable for us and we don't really pay attention to a speed limit sign and if we do see it it doesn't really register. While well, I was driving through this neighborhood one day and I looked up and the speed limit sign maybe do a double take And the the reason was because the speed limit sign said 17 and a half miles per hour, literally had a a one half on there. And I was like, wait, what? what? How do you you measure one half mile per hour on my speedometer, right? What that sign did was, and it's a a psychological uh, concept called strange making. They took something that was hyper familiar, the speed limit sign, and they made it strange. And by making it strange... It caused me to pay attention to it. And so the natural reaction was, I looked at 17 and a half miles per hour, and then I actually looked at my speedometer to see what I was doing. Now, the funny thing is, if it had said 15 miles per hour, that would have been safer, but I probably wouldn't have paid attention to it because it's so hyper familiar, I would have ignored it. But by by making it strange, it disrupted my thought process and caused me to take a second look at it. And so, you know, I use that analogy by saying what I think the challenge in American Christianity is, is that so many people have an assumption of what Christianity is that causes them to dismiss any traditional expressions of it. Sunday morning church, a Bible track, an outreach event. No, no, no. I know what that is. I'm not interested. The challenge for us as Christians is to find a way to make the expression of Christianity strange enough or disruptive enough that someone stops and goes, wait a minute, I've never seen anything like that before. And the reason you want to disrupt their assumption is so that they it's not about Christianity. It's about getting them to go, wait a minute, if that's what your faith looks like, then maybe I need to reconsider Jesus. It's ultimately about getting them to think about who Jesus is. And so I say that the, one of the skills that we need in our, in our modern churches is to help people know how to live disruptive disciple-making lives. How do you engage with the world around you and make your expression of Christianity strange enough, unique enough, remarkable enough that people go, wait a minute, I, I, I thought I know what, what it was to be a Christian, but I've never seen anyone do that. You know, Michael Frost uses the, the line, you know, we're called to live a questionable life. That's his expression of this. And what he means by that is we're called to live a life that evokes questions from people for which the gospel is the answer. Or someone might look at your life and go, you know, a lot of people are involved in charity, but I've never seen anyone express the kind of radical generosity or, or care or compassion that you express. What's that all about? You know, or I've seen a lot of people go out of their way to, you know, serve others in their lives. But man, you go above and beyond. What is that all about? These sort of questions where then you say, well, actually, I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus's main purpose in life was to, to serve others. And so I'm just trying to model my life after that. That's not about Christianity. That's not about church. That's pointing them to Jesus. And I've had those sort of conversations and people will look at me and go, huh, that's cool. I like that. Huh? Yeah, I like that. And if I had said to them, hey, you want to go to my church on Sunday? they go, no, I don't like church. I don't like that. But something about you know, a disruptive practice from the life of Jesus made them go, oh, I I like that. I want to reconsider that. And so it's a very different skill set and it takes a lot of creativity and practice, you know, but I think it's, it's kind of key for the modern day Christian to think about how do I live these remarkable practices of Jesus that cause people to remark on them? How do I live a questionable life that causes people to question them? how do I disrupt their assumptions of a Christian or of Christianity that make them go, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe there's more to this than I thought.
0: Mm. And how is that different than what you call the industrialized disciple making? So just to help us under, you know, if we understand like maybe the other side, it helps us to understand more what you mean by the disruptive. So how is that in your mind different? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, The Industrial Revolution was all about creating systems that plug and play systems, right? Where any individual person on the industrial assembly line could be replaced with another person who knew how to do one specific task. So my job is to punch the rivet and then pass it down the line. My job is to attach the, the windshields to the car and then it moves on. And all I know how to do is one thing. There's no way I could make a whole car. I just know how to attach... The windshield to a car. A lot of churches had become, I think, have become kind of industrialized in their disciple making approach, where they take individuals in their community and they say, "Hey, we have a, a an assembly line of discipleship. They, they call it a discipleship pathway for new people, and we want you to play one role in that pathway. So we take you if you're an extrovert. We say your job is to be on the hospitality team Sunday morning that stands in the lobby." And greets people and makes them feel super warm and friendly and answers any questions and shows them where the coffee is. Or you're more of an introvert. So your job on the pipeline is to stand in the parking lot and show people where they park and have a good systematic approach to parking that makes it highly efficient, right? Or you're good with kids. So we're going to put you in the nursery on a Sunday morning and and you're going to help our kids sing songs and, and learn some Bible stories. But you have one specific part to play. And the most important parts. In the assembly line will be played by the professionals. It's the stuff that happens up on the stage, right? It's going to be the Bible teaching. It's going to be the gospel presentation. It's going to be maybe the end of service altar call invites, the closing the deal, so to speak. But those important parts will be played by professionals. You just play your part. And what ultimately happens in that sort of an industrialized approach to disciple making is if you can get someone to go through the assembly line, you might be able to make them into a disciple. But you're not having a transformational impact on the life of your own people who are only attaching a windshield to a car. They don't know how to make a car. They just know how to put a windshield on. And so what I learned as I began to engage over a decade with people in my megachurch is that if I went to them and said, hey, I've got a young college student who needs to be discipled. They need to know the way of Jesus. They need to learn the life of Jesus. If I assign them to you, could you disciple them? They would look at me like, no, "Oh no, I, I wouldn't. I'd have no idea what to do." But I'd think to myself, "But you've been in this church for twenty years. You've, you know." And then I go, "But honestly, all we've ever asked you to do is be an usher, or all we've ever asked you to do is, you know, be on the worship team. You've you've only attached a windshield. You've never made a whole car." And so, you know, how do we rethink this? Approach where it's not uh, a, an industrialized system that relies on property programs and professionals, but actually we teach each individual disciple to know how to make a disciple themselves. You know, to to actually know the skills that Jesus was instilling in his disciples when he would send them out two by two and say, "Now go into the neighborhood and proclaim the kingdom of God and, and make disciples." What he didn't say was, "Hey, go invite everyone to come back to my." my big gathering on the hillside tomorrow and I'll do the disciple making guys. I can't possibly trust you with that, but that's honestly what most American churches are, you know, is, is we invite you to come and let the professionals do all the work. And so it's not actually forming our own people to participate in the work of Jesus.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's the whole thing was a real struggle for me when I was pastoring. Cause you know, I would have people a part of my church and, and I know you were in Hollywood, so you you can understand, like these are movers and shakers, you know, mm. this is like bank presidents would come to my church. I had one guy that had started, you know, a multi, multi, multi-million dollar company. And, you know, he had like a thousand employees and all this stuff. These are like high capacity people. And the best I had for them was, could you help me cook bacon for the men's <laughs> breakfast on Saturday? Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Right. Like, can you work the nursery? Can you... You know, do, do the lyrics on the, on the thing and make sure that the cue is exactly right when, you know, it's, it's time to, to do the altar call. I, one of my dear friends, former church members, she's like, she's this top, top percentage real estate person in all of Southern California. And right now she supervises the guy that clicks the lyrics. So not only is there a guy oh my that gosh. clicks the lyrics yeah. to make sure they're right. There's someone that supervises them to make sure that, you know, and, and so I always struggle with like, man, this is the best I have. Like there's nothing else to really offer them. You know, the, the, the goal of when we were in church, a lot of times is like, you're going to be a small group leader or discipleship Mm. leader or something like that. But even in that setting, like I was giving them the material. Yeah. Here are the four questions that I asked based on the sermon. That's right. And then, and then I wonder why we don't have any ministers, you know, we don't have any missionaries. So yeah, I really appreciated what you had to say about kind of that dynamic. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, The last thing I just kind of wanted to, to go over with you is we live in LA and it could quite possibly be the food truck capital of the world, (laughs) which is one of the joys of living in LA, right? Yeah. And so you use the food truck as, as a metaphor for how you see the future of the church. And I think uh, someone coming from Brussels, I think what you said about the joy of being able to go to Europe and see the church, the future of the church, the American church really positions you to be able to talk about this from kind of an expert kind of level. So tell us a little bit about food truck ministry versus the Sunday centric model.
1: Yeah. You know, when I moved to LA, the first wedding I got invited to after the wedding, at the reception, they literally handed me a little ticket and told me that my meal was being served at a food truck outside. So go outside and get your meal and then come back into the reception. And I had spent 10 years you know, in the South at like, you know, pretty fancy wedding receptions and past appetizers and bussers and servers. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a different culture. And it just kind of opened my eyes to how much the food truck was part of urban life and especially here in LA. And it kind of stuck with me. And a friend of mine named Jack and I were discussing one time the paradigm change that was needed for existing churches. And we ended up kind of realizing that the way church had traditionally been done was very similar to the way a restaurant operates. And so if you think about a a restaurant expression of church, you know, it exists in a specific place, it has good signage, it's all about, you know, inviting in new customers and making them feel warm and welcome and curating the best possible experience for them. You try to have convenient parking. You have a host whose only job is to greet you and seat you. And then you have waiters whose job it is to serve you. You have a chef in the back who their only job is to make the food. You'll never meet them. All right. You have a busser. I mean, you have all these highly individualized professions within a restaurant where they just do their one thing as well as they can. And the goal is to provide you with a meal that satisfies you. So when you leave, you'll go tell your friends and invite them to join you next time or to, or to check out that restaurant. If it's successful, what do you do? You either add on to it or you you multiply it, you franchise it, you build them all over the city, right? And I thought, man, if that ain't what the American church looks like, it, it's, a, it's a space with good parking and good signage. It's got highly specialized either staff or volunteers who do one job. And the whole thing kind of caters to a consumer who wants to get fed. They want a spiritual meal, not a physical meal. If I could
0: jump in just real quick, John, I was thinking about another part of that is like, and they typically have a specialized menu, right? Like you go there because of the fish, you go there because of the steak and how many people go to churches because their worship is really good. Or I Mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? Like it's that flavor of the menu. No, I'm just, I'm just loving the, the loving the analogy. Sorry to interrupt. And even a a
1: kid's menu, right? They have a special menu for kids, you know, in the same way that the church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a
0: playground for kids in the back, back, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh
1: (laughs) Because they know that, hey, if you can attract young families, that's a huge market share for you as a restaurant. So, so all of those kind of restaurant realities are very common in the American church, which has franchised and has built its own version of celebrity chefs who write their, you know, cookbooks and have their huge Instagram followings and all that kind of stuff. Well, the problem is what happens with an existing restaurant when it gets a a bad health review, right? You know, What happens when the New York Times comes out and says that this restaurant actually is no longer hip or cool, or the health department says there's rats running around the background. And so we put a letter D in the front window. Well, once that restaurant kind of falls out of favor, it's not long before that thing goes out of business it's you know it's a pretty tight profit margin in that business. So I began to kind of think, this is what's happening in the American church. A lot of churches are going out of business the same way a restaurant goes out of business because they're not connecting with culture. They're being seen as unhealthy, uh, not positive. They're not getting good reviews anymore. And so what if we reimagine the American church not as a, a restaurant that you go to for a meal, but what if we reimagine the American church as a fleet of food trucks that are sent out into the community to provide meals. So food trucks, smaller team, very nimble, less startup costs. They still have maybe that specialized menu that they're really passionate about, but they can go to different neighborhoods and basically kind of embed in the neighborhood so that that person doesn't have to leave their own rhythm of life and to experience a good meal. Most food truck teams are owned. I mean, the food truck is owned by those people. So they have a lot higher level of buy-in. Usually the person who drives the truck also knows how to make the meal. It also knows how to set up the chairs outside and also knows how to run the books. You know, there's a lot of cross training. So from, from beginning to end, they know how to make their meal in the same way that a food truck church knows how to make a whole disciple. And, you know, this, this image began to be kind of the story that we would tell. People would say, hey, how are we trying to do church differently? I would simply say, you know, we're trying to pivot from more of a restaurant model of church to a food truck model of church. Now, food trucks still have to park at the end of the day somewhere. So they often gather at these things that are called commissaries or hubs and they get restocked and refueled and they share stories about how their day went. So I said to our community, hey, we're still going to gather on Sundays, but rather than thinking of our gathering as a a restaurant expression that's going to feed you, let's think of it more as a gathering of all of our food truck you know, drivers and leaders who come together to refuel and restock and share stories. But what we celebrate is that the primary expression of our community is when we deploy out into the neighborhoods the other six days of the week. And that's what we really want to focus on is how do we deliver a gospel meal? How do we envision a meal that presents the kingdom of God into the different parts of LA and really focus on that part, the other six days of the week, not just what we do on Sunday morning here. So that that analogy, we ended up kind of hiring some of the artists in our community to turn that into like a little three, four-minute explainer video. And you know, that became a a story for us that we could try to live into as you know narrative creatures who kind of wonder, who are we, what are we doing? Say, well, we're we're pivoting from restaurants to food trucks. And and what would it look like for you and some others to kind of imagine a food truck expression of church? That would be appealing to a specific neighborhood or network that you already are living in. Yeah, no, I love it. I I
0: oftentimes think our only missional strategy here in the West is a worship service. Like, that's our missional strategy. Like, that's what we have to offer. We go into a community and we say, we want to reach this city. So, what's the first thing we do? (laughs) We put it on a worship service, you know? Like, that's our strategy. So, I, I really love the food truck ministry because you're not saying, or at least the way I read it was you're not saying like throw away the worship service. You're saying like, let's just shift the way we yeah. look at it so that it actually promotes something else. Yeah. And I that's think a that's, great, yeah. right somewhere along the way. Like that's probably what it was meant to be or intended to be, but it just kind of shifted into, Hey, why should we go anywhere where we could just stay here and invite people, you know, like yeah. how much nicer is this? So, yeah, I really really enjoy your your analogy there. Any last things you wanted to say before we go about the, the things
1: we talked about? You probably have a couple days. for those who are church leaders in your community. You know, you probably have two different types of people. You have those who are exist, who are leading existing traditional forms of church that are a little more Sunday centric. You know, property professionals programs. You know, my book was intended for that kind of audience to kind of think about making the pivot, making the shift, beginning to experiment with new ways of operating the church. You also probably have others who are maybe out of leadership but would want to start something, have this vision for uh, something new, but may not feel like they have the training, may not feel like they have the community around them. You know, and and I think that you know nowadays more and more of my heart is going towards equipping those local leaders to imagine themselves as pioneers or planters who don't have to try to start something big, but can start something very small, very local, you know, uh, a dinner expression of church, a uh, a prayer gathering, uh, you know, a simple spiritual conversation group that gathers each week at a local pub and just beginning to help them kind of experiment with it. So here's the thing I often say is I don't think Daniel that my generation I'm I'm in my 40s. I don't think my generation is going to be the generation that solves this kind of ecclesiological crisis, missiological crisis that we're in right now. I think this generation is the generation that is going to have the courage to experiment with new ideas, have the courage to maybe, you know, critique some of the old paradigms and basically stir up the pot enough that the next generation, my kids who are 17 and 14 we'll actually be able to create some new forms and models that that connect with the next generation. So I recognize that we're in kind of a liminal transitional space right now. We're in this land in between. And I try to encourage people, don't get discouraged if you feel like your entire life is all about experimentation and never about perfecting a process or really getting it right. I, I kind of think that's who we are right now. We are the people in the land in between. And our job is to be faithful to critique to have a prophetic voice that says we we can do better as the people of God and let's try some things and recognize that the people who follow after us might be the ones who ultimately get to reap the benefit of that. You know, one of the words that God gave me years ago was your fruit will grow in other people's trees. And and that was hard for me to hear <laughs> as a pastor who really wanted to have all the fruit on my tree, you know, because I like fruit. I like being able to look at my life and think it's fruitful. But I, I felt this this sense that, <laughs> I'm not going to be the one who harvests a lot of the fruit that God is calling me to be a part of. And so, I think that's kind of a, a maybe even a word for our generation is that the the fruit of our effort will come on other people's trees in in the next season. Mm.
0: Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I just have absolutely enjoyed our conversation. Do me a favor, tell people how how they can get a copy of your book, how they can maybe contact you if they want some coaching or a little bit yeah. more about what Commutatos does. Yeah. Just, just share with us how they can get in contact with you.
1: Yeah. Again, the book's called Positively Irritating and, um, you know, it's available on all online booksellers. There's a, I recorded my own audio version of it, which was really fun. So there's an audio version that's on Audible and iTunes and things like that as well. And my email is John Rittner at Gmail. There's no H in John, just J O N. R-I-T-N-E-R. I'm sure you'll see that in the show notes there. Um, One of my favorite things to do is jump on a call with a a leadership team or uh, even an individual after reading my book and just kind of go through the the key concepts and try to contextualize them for their environment. And so that's led to some good coaching relationships out of that. I do some coaching and organizational consulting now. And then uh, if you're looking for a tribe, if you're looking for a community of, of people who are experimenting in this new sandbox communitas international is the organization that i'm working with now and and we start shape churches for the modern world and so we're we're doing that both here in north america and around the world and and that's been a real joy to kind of see uh, the ways that jesus is inspiring and uh, creatively expressing new forms of church through the lives of people and and bringing their own skills and talents and calling to bear in those expressions so any of those ways i'd love to get in touch with people and, and serve them if i could all right thank you Again John, thank you. I've appreciated our budding
0: friendship and Yeah. Yeah, look forward to seeing how, you know, God is going to interweave our lives even more down the road. So, bless you my brother. Thank you. Great to be with you today. So, thanks for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check us out and what we're doing at the scvunderground.org. With that being said, thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time.